You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello and welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan and I am here with my two co-hosts, Rob. How's it going? Hey, how are you? And Anthony, what's up? Hey, how's it going, Alan? Phenomenal. All right, so let's get kicked off here with a little bit of listener feedback. Jessica in Florida, who is one of our regular listeners, had a comment about our Glastonbury show, particularly my mention of Sam Fender who she has been listening to for a while now and really loves and highly recommends both of his albums. She also wanted to recommend a band called The Snuts, who she says, quote, played on one of the 10 million smaller stages at Glasto. <laughs> right. And she really liked their first album, which is called WL. So she's like, enjoys the show and... Uh, enjoyed that episode particularly and wanted to throw out a couple of new recommendations for us all to listen to. So thank you, Jessica, for listening. Just to reiterate, that was the Snuts, S-N-U-T-S? Yep. Okay. S-N. I haven't looked into them yet. I'm going to listen to this album based on her recommendation because I've yeah, heard from her before too. and I know that she has excellent taste. So I'm looking forward to, to hearing what this is all about. All right, so let's do our shout outs. What have you guys been listening to or reading or watching this past week? I've been listening to the new single from All, uh, Always. Spelt oh, yeah. V's. Yeah, the AVV. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I just want to say, can we please stop putting two vowels and two consonants together? It's getting Thank over. you. Thank you. Um, it's really old. It's not clever. You're causing <laughs> the entire nation of dyslexic people to be even more stupid. Please stop. Rob, the, the, the people of Wales would like a word with you. But that's different. <laughs> that's cultural. But that is cultural. That's <laughs> this different. is not trying to be clever, and it makes yeah. it impossible for for your listeners and potential fans to find you on Spotify or a database or anything. So yeah. just stop it now. So just what, what, while we're on that rant, replacing letters with numbers, we also need to stop that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. I'm the youngest and, one here, and I'm the one bringing that up, so I get to be an old man for a change. And Pink with her nonsense of replacing an I with an, an exclamation point or whatever. Screw you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that, Don't that screw. Makes I love her. So. so much harder, though. It really right. does for people. Right. You know. Exactly. It's just I don't, I don't understand why they do that. Um, also, my reigning sound. Um, their album '89 Memories is just wonderful. Um, I know I've talked about it a little bit before, but. Um, Still great, folks. Don't uh, don't miss out on it. And uh, I would be remiss because this is uh, Bastille Day. Uh, I want to mention a song called Roller Girl by Anna Karina, uh, which is a French pop record that's just really, really fabulous. Um, it's really great. And um, also, I have been listening to the Amelie soundtrack a lot this week uh, in preparation for Bastille Day. And probably the best French pop record to come out in like the last 25 years, uh, Moon Safari by Air, mm. which is just absolutely incredible. And uh, I'm going to be the only person in the world 
to mention Renegade Soundwave uh, in a sentence this week. But uh, if you listen to this band, Renegade Soundwave, who not only sampled the TARDIS in, in their in Dove album, but also um, sampled Serge Gainsbourg's Bonnie and Clyde in one of their records in Soundclash. Um, and it's just a hoot. So I want to give a shout out to them as well. And um, also the brand new record from Horse Girl, which I think I've talked about a couple times, which is still just uh, really, really great. So Horse those Girl. Are Horse Girl. They're from Chicago. They're playing Lollapalooza um, and a bunch of festivals. And they definitely sort of got a, got a whole sound and sort of a whole feel of their own, which is, uh, which is also, I think, terribly important. And then also um, Sparks reissues are out. And uh, I have rediscovered a steady drip, 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 um, uh. which I liked, but it's been a <laughs> while. It's been a while since I listened to it. Um, and I've just been playing that a lot. And it's just terribly, terribly great. So there you go. Excellent. Anthony, what's going on? So this week has been a bit of a weird week. I've probably listened to more podcasts and so on than I have music. Uh, so mm -hmm. I actually went and looked at my last.fm to see what I've actually been listening to because I have it tracking everything. And unsurprisingly, it's been a lot of Porcupine Tree and a lot of Sparks. So I'm apparently very on brand for myself this week. Right. <laughs> um, still playing the hell out of Porcupine Tree's new album. And then Sparks have just been a smattering of something from every album, probably because I have a Sparks favorites playlist that I curated for myself. Mm -hmm. So I probably just put that on random a few times and got stuff <laughs> through their entire career. But beyond that, I mean, if I can give some shout outs to some non-music podcasts, I've been listening to okay. Doc Who on the Rocks, which is two oh. um, women in Texas who drink whiskey and watch Doctor Who. They're very entertaining. Um, Maximum Power, which is a wonderful Blake Seven podcast. And um, I was watching a video essay on Doctor Who on uh youtube that basically was a five hour long thing about why chris chibnall sucks which was an interesting perspective <laughs> wow interesting and needed yeah uh, i mean i found it hard to disagree right with a lot of what what uh they were saying god that but, poor guy <laughs> i mean five hours five hours and every <laughs> point it was actually really well done well-constructed criticism it wasn't just putting him on blast mm -hmm. so um that was very very interesting worth interesting. watching if you can find it i think it's I called say, like if i can if i can find five hours to spare i will listen to that i i was definitely listening while working yeah i can't do that though i cannot listen to something and do something else at the same time depends it just doesn't work for this, me this was a quieter week for me at work because everyone else was off because of the holiday so yeah yeah um i've got a, a podcast that i check in on every once in a while it's not one that i listened to this past week but i, I do want to mention it it's called the thousand and one album club and yeah. this is a podcast that goes through the list of the thousand and one albums that you should listen to before you die and they review every one of them and they are up to uh number 462 right now which is crocodiles by echo and the bunny men and it's they do any genre any band it's whatever is on that list they they listen to it and review it not necessarily in any particular order they kind of jump around but it's it's so fun and usually the episodes are only about half an hour so it's an easy listen and you get a really good 
insight into all these different albums. And it's one that I have listened to on road trips before and have really enjoyed. So yeah. just a little quick uh, shout out about that. Can I do a podcast shout out? Yeah. No. So oh, sorry. Um, Anthony says no. Okay. Well, that's fine. America's no, go ahead, hard. please. Thanks, A-Dub. Um, so uh, Mr. J.J. Hawkins, uh, who I know from NeatCoffee.com, and a friend of his uh, named Matt Lees, who um, is uh, also from the United Kingdom, uh, have a podcast called You Love Musicals and So Do We. And uh, basically what it is is there are a couple of metalhead guys that talk yeah. about musicals. And, Interesting. Um, I, want him, I want J.J. to come on the show sometime because it's really funny. Um because they talk about musicals they like and why without any inhibitions and they're fearless and it's funny. That's awesome. Yeah. Nice. All right. Yeah. So some other stuff that I actually have been listening to this week, um, I caught an interview uh, a couple of days ago um, by the, the guy, the main guy who's the songwriter and lead singer of the Rex. And so I've been listening to them a lot. And have really enjoyed that. That's that's kind of a, it's a name that I've been familiar with, but I've not ever really listened to. So I've started really investing in it this week and have really enjoyed what I've heard. But the big one for me, one of my very favorite bands that no one ever thinks is an actual favorite band of mine. Mm -hmm. but they really are. Aha mm -hmm. has yep. a new single out called I'm In from a new album that's going to be coming out pretty soon. And it's a it's a great song. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that I would rank it as one of the best singles they've ever released, but, um, I, I enjoy it. I think it's really good and I'm looking forward to seeing what the album is going to be like. So, and, and the documentary is streaming in North America finally too. So you can do both. Is it somewhere that's accessible because I haven't been able to find it. I believe it is on Apple and I'm not on. Oh, I all right. I'll look for Apple. that. Cause I'm um, super excited to see that. And it is, it is terrific. And um, I was I, I the minute I heard there was a new Aha single, you were the first person I thought of. Yes. And I really I really liked it in terms of just being more than a pop record. Yeah. Um, but I'm weird. I love their second record more than their first. So what do I know? Oh, dude, um, their second record is amazing. Yeah, I think it's I think their second record is so much more deeper than their first one. But it's just nice to have them back. It's I mean, there's yeah. all these '80s bands that are sort of just back for the sake of being back. And they're back, but it sounds like when you listen to the single that they're still trying to do something new and mm -hmm. keep their sound, but not be stuck in, you know. But not 80s. be trapped by it. Yeah. Yeah. Which I exactly. thought was very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. All right. So we are going to take a super quick break to uh, do an ad for uh, one of the other podcasts on our network. And we will be right back in 30 seconds with our main topic, talking about Kate Bush. So. Pow, pow. <laughs> I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> all right. Be back in 30 seconds. Helm report. Sir, there's Klingons on the starboard bow. Starboard bow? Starboard bow. What are they doing there? They seem to be waiting for the new episode of Earth Station Trek. Science, what do we know about this Earth Station Trek? It's a podcast that tracks through the history of Star Trek, from the early days on NBC to the future on Paramount Plus and everywhere in between. Navigation, how would one find such a podcast? By setting coordinates for EarthStationTrek.com or by doing a sensor sweep of Spotify, iTunes, or any other quadrant where fine podcasts are available. Captain, what are we going to do about the Klingons? We come in peace, Commander. Weapon station, shoot to kill. Shoot, shoot to, to kill. kill! Shoot to kill! Welcome back. Here we are going to talk about Kate Bush, who has had quite a resurgence in her career. Thanks to Stranger Things using 
uh, one of her bigger, uh, more iconic songs, Running Up That Hill, in a number of episodes. And this has put that song back on the top of the charts in the UK. It has put her in the top 10 in America. It has made uh, the album that it came from, um, Hounds of Love, is now on the top 20, I think it is, in America. Unbelievable that using the song in, I mean, this song was used in a really, really special way in that show. And I think that it, the way that it was done, it was just resonated with so many people. But all of a sudden, that song is everywhere. It's like in TikTok reels and it's in like whatever. It's every fucking station on Sirius XM is playing it now when none of them even knew that Kate Bush existed two weeks ago. You know, like every one of them has jumped on the bandwagon and I am here for it because I have been a Kate Bush fan for a long, long time. Tell me how you guys first discovered Kate and how you got into her. When I was in high school, back when I was a weird, much weirder kid, I was a little new wave kid um, before that, just kind of the beginning of that. Uh, I used to take a math transit to school every, every, every day. And there was a guy on the bus that uh, I'd see all the time. His name was Mike. And um, he's usually influential because I was reading um, Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke one day on the bus. And then the next day he's like, have you read this? And he handed me um, one of the Bantam Doctor Who novels for Jenna, uh, Valentine. And that's how I got into that. Right. So we, then we start talking about music and I was mentioning the things that I liked. And he goes, have you heard Kate Bush yet? And I said, no, I haven't. So the next day I got a cassette tape um, that basically was like all of um, the dreaming and then a bunch of other songs of hers with it. Mm. And this is like 1983, 84. And um, I put it in my Walkman, kids ask your parents. And um, I just remember that it sounded absolutely like nothing I'd heard of. I mean, the production at that time was, okay, a lot of records have that sort of like sound, but the voice, I just remember it being probably one of the few times in my early adolescence when I just fell in love with an artist because of the voice, not necessarily because of the, the records or the music. And it sort of started a, um, a path that I just like, anytime I saw anything Kate Bush, I bought it, I consumed it, you know, I bought all the smash hits and star hits. And I think I've got 12 or 15, between 12 to 20 enemies with Kate Bush in them. Uh, it just sort of opened the Pandora's box, so to speak on her and I had no idea how influential she was until college. I just thought, oh, I like Kate Bush. Cause really the juice bars I went to when I was a teenager didn't really play Kate Bush. The music venues didn't really play her and it didn't really come up in conversation. And she really wasn't a staple on 120 minutes until the late eighties. Um, so I, I kind of was on an island with Kate Bush for the longest time. And like many things in life, when you find other people that like that, like when I found other people like Kate Bush, it was like amazing um, and life affirming. So that's my, my that's my intro to Kate Bush. story. So firstly, before I get into this, I, I do want to say I recently listened to a really interesting interview between uh, with Stephen Wilson and Richard Barbieri of Porcupine Tree. And it was in promotion of the new album, Closure, closure continuation but it was after running up that hill had been launched back into the stratosphere by stranger things mm. and 
both of them are known Kate Bush fans, and they were asked about what their favorite Kate Bush album was. And Rob, you mentioned The Dreaming. Mm. One of them said The Dreaming, the other one said The Hounds of Love, and they got into a little bit of a tete-a-tete about it, and they both agreed that what was so interesting about those two albums in particular was the way that she used her voice really as an additional instrument. It's not yes. just vocals. Um, and because you mentioned The Dreaming, I, I wanted to get that out of the way early. Anyway, I think on previous episodes of this podcast i have mentioned my parents love of compilation albums and i think my very 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 first exposure to kate bush came from one called it's christmas oh yeah which had yeah not the 90s version but the original 1979 version of december will be magic again on it Mm -hmm. And I remember my parents hated it. <laughs> my mother made a comment of, what is this caterwauling? My father said, oh, my God, it's that wailing woman again. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but this was on tape. This wasn't on CD. So it wasn't just, right. you know, as easy as you're in the car, you, you hit next and it goes on to next. So we would always listen through it. And it entranced me. Hmm. And then a few years later, I... We'd just got cable and I was watching VH1 because old soul, I hated whatever was on MTV in 95. And Wuthering Heights came on and I kind of sat up and thought, oh, I recognize that voice. Mm. And again, it just absolutely entranced me. And it wasn't really for another few years before I really started having my own money um, and being able to buy things that had her tracks on and then of course you hit the early 2000s you're you're in the napster era um and i may have obtained a few kate bush tracks through decidedly questionable means (laughs) but i think that's when i really really loved her and the the other thing that was interesting was by about 97 98 when Tori Amos, who I want to talk about later when we talk about people Kate Bush's influence, but she released a song called Spark, which is still my favorite Tori Amos song. And I kind of sat up and thought, oh, this sounds like a kind of edgier version of those songs I love by Kate Bush. Mm. And, um, you know, I I think that kind of really intensified my quest to hear more and more of this wonderful artist. So... That's kind of how I got into Kate Bush. Um, compilation tapes, VH1, Tori Amos, <laughs> Napster, you know. That's funny because mine is kind of roundabout as well. Mine, I don't I, I don't remember which of these two things happened first. Um, but both these things happened in 1978. One, Kate Bush appeared on Saturday Night Live in season four. She played Them Heavy People and Man with a Child in His Eyes. And I know I saw that episode because it was the Eric Idle hosted one and it, it's a classic, but I don't really remember much. I mean, I've seen the performances since then, but I don't remember what my impression of it was at that time. But also somewhere in 78, uh, in a record store, I found the album that from the, the cover of her second album, uh, Lionheart, where she's basically in an attic. And she's wearing a lion costume. And I'm like, that's 
kind of weird and kind of interesting, but I didn't really, I didn't buy it or anything. I just thought, oh, that's interesting. So what, uh, the thing that really hooked me was, and I know this is something that, uh, Anthony and I disagree on a little bit, but Boo. in 1980, I know where you're going. <laughs> 1980, Pat Benatar's second album came out and she was on tour in the UK when Wuthering Heights was a huge hit. And she fell in love with the song. And she's like, we are recording this song on our next album. So they did. And it's a little more rock kind of uh, arrangement with a guitar solo in the middle and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so it, it's changed a good bit. And I loved it. And I noticed in the songwriting credits that I was like, hey, that's that woman that was wearing that lion costume on that album cover I saw a while back. And um, so that was sort of where my awareness of Kate came from. But it wasn't until 85 when MTV started playing the Top of the Pops clip of her doing Running Up That Hill. And I was like, holy shit, I don't know what this is, but I love it. And a lot of it was because, you know, she and the, the, the musicians who were on stage with her were dressed kind of like Robin Hood-ish. And they had the the... Uh, balalaikas and those kind of things and the drummer was up front and i was like this is the coolest thing i've ever seen and went out and bought hounds of love after the second or third time i heard that song i was like i can't get enough of this went out and bought the album and i i remember the day the day that i first listened to that album i know exactly where i was i know exactly what time of day it was that's the impact that this that record had on me alan it's really funny you talk about that holy shit moment because i think that's exactly what a whole generation of fundamentally teenagers i think right now are going yeah, through i think so too i think it's interesting because it's such a it's such a hypnotic song mm -hmm. you know it's got that repetitive beat that isn't it, it sort of drones but it isn't like it's monotonous it it just propels you forward and everything that she layers on top of that is so captivating to me the beat's almost like a gallop. Exactly. Like, dun, 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 dun. like yep. you speed that up and that's Steve Harris from Iron Maiden on the bass. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's something that's still today. I mean, I listen to it, you know, when it comes on the radio, I have a Kate Bush alert set on my Sirius XM. And for the longest time, it was only ever that song. Like channel 33 would play that song once in a while. And I was—I still love every single time I hear it. I play it as loud as I can. And I was pulling up into work one day and coworkers were like, oh, you like Kate Bush, huh? And I'm like, yeah, how'd you know? It's like, oh, we could hear it from outside the cars. Kind of loud. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but at least they knew who she was. That's yeah. true. I was impressed with that. But, you know, I work at a library, so I have intelligent coworkers. <laughs> Maybe um, working at a library, turn the stereo down when you pull up into the parking lot, Alan? Nah. <laughs> nah, screw that. You know, since this nuttiness happened with her getting played on the radio, I would get a Kate Bush request like twice a year, right? <laughs> and it would always be, it'd be like, it'd be like a seminal event, like, oh my God, someone wants to hear Kate Bush, right? Right. And now... I think the fewest requests for Kate Bush I've gotten is 16 in the last month, and the most is 38. <laughs> and um, I and you honor of, every one of them, don't you? Well, what's interesting is, you know, 
originally was a bunch of it's a bunch of people that are like roughly in our generation between Anthony and, and you and I. It's just like I really want to hear it. You know, maybe think of the song again. Can you play it? Then it became, um, hey, I want my kid to hear more from her besides this. And now it's just it's all kids, and it's kids like, okay, what's this other record like, or what's this, or what's that? And um, it's it's pretty fun, you know. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen this much excitement about a song on radio, arguably since Smells Like Teen Spirit dropped, just in terms of like people calling a radio station and wanting to hear a song, like I'll play it. And then somebody's like, Hey, play it again. You know, I, it's just, it's very weird and it's very awesome. And this for a song that is 37 years old. Yes. Right. Exactly. (laughs) But you know, what's interesting about it is that it doesn't sound time locked to me. You know, yeah. it is right in the middle, that's like 1985. It's right in the middle of the height of that very particular kind of 80s production. And I just don't think this, it has such a unique sound to it. That whole album does. That whole album is brilliant. Anybody who's like just picking up on Kate Bush now from hearing that song, go get that album. It is so good. And speaking of it, I mean, it, it feels like it's a song that, even before Stranger Things, kind of comes back round every few years anyway. So yeah. 2003, Placebo covered it. Yeah, I didn't like their cover, but, <laughs> you know, who the hell am I? And then three years ago, Meg Myers covered it, and Meg Myers' cover was banging. Yeah, that I agree. That was so good. Yeah. I mean, it was a bit closer to the original, but... Um, than the placebo version but it feels like it's a a song that's influenced enough bands for it to just periodically come back as a cover by someone else and then suddenly stranger things comes in plays it and everyone else goes oh okay like yeah yeah now now you see what you were missing out on gen z old man shouts at cloud <laughs> I have a friend named Ed who we 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 differ in our taste in a lot of things and he can't stand Kate Bush. He also can't stand Susie and the Banshees even though that is his whole like genre of music. He just can't stand Susie and the Banshees. I love them both. There is this band that used to come to Dragon Con a few times and they were called shit. Now I don't remember. Uh, the Changelings. Um, that's a great name. I'm very familiar with them. They opened for Liquid. liquid <laughs> no, 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 not them. Um, um, <laughs> any, no, definitely was it, so not. Was it, wasn't it the Changelings or that that Abbey band? No. Okay. Anyway, so they. Oh, uh, Faith and the Muse. That's oh, it. yeah. Right, yeah, right, right. And um, so, and he was like, uh, so I was like, oh, we should go see these bands. He's like, oh, I've heard that they sound kind of like Susie. I'm going to hate them. So I'm like, fine, I'm going to go anyway. So he went and just hung out with people and talked. The middle of Faith of the Muse set, they start playing Running Up That Hill. So I like ran around. It was one of the huge ballrooms. And I ran around that room until I found Ed. And I'm like, oh, my God, they're playing Kate Bush. And he was like, oh, fuck me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was like, Um, dude, you can't get away from it, man. Just embrace it. Remember, too, 2005, the Future Heads did a cover of Hounds of Love. And that song was getting more of a pop on their live sets than it was the, the songs that they had dropped as singles. And then also, mm. I believe in 90, 
91 or 92, um, I used to, when I was going to the limelight, when I just started doing DJ gigs, and you took Saints to record and Sam Kate Bush in it. And it was just weird hearing her on like an electronic record. It was just like, okay, this is frightening. She is everywhere. You know, the other weird thing too is I was in a uh, Kmart in uh, South Bend, Indiana, and I heard Kate Bush. And it was the weirdest Mm. thing. It was like 1986 or 87. But I just remembered at the time it was weird because I'm like, why is this on Kmart, right? So then about maybe 10 years ago, before they started closing Kmarts, I went to a Kmart again because uh, I found a Kmart, Kmart gift card or gift certificate in my dad's stuff, and it was never used. So I'm like, well, i got to use this, right? And they were playing Kate Bush. Yeah. It was just weird, you know? So I, I do think she has a timelessness. Mm-hmm. I do think she is way more influential than the people who loved her thought they were. And I think that not only is the success welcome, but I think it is really starting to re people are starting to like culturally reevaluate her relevance, which I think is terrific. You know what else that, that makes me think of, she's been uh, nominated for the rock and roll hall of fame three times. Now the, the, the second and third time were this, this year and the, and the previous year. And I got to wonder, had this, had this current wave happened because of stranger things, had that happened a year earlier, or even eight months earlier, would that have changed the way that the voting body responded to her being on that list? Would she have made it in because of a greater awareness had this happened then? I think absolutely, because I think fundamentally they're very popularist. And I think probably right now they're feeling kind of stupid because they've missed the opportunity to have her featured when they do the show later this year. Yeah. But I also think, too, that um, there's a wide variety of people that vote for that institution that believe if an artist is, quote, unquote, too out, too far out there, they don't put them in. Right. So now is she too far out there? Right. This, that changes the whole ballgame. It's like much like you said. I mean, it sort of just changes how people view her. But there are still critics that won't put her in because they still see her as too independent or too alternative or too fringy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a weird body for the rock and roll. I mean, it, it is literally the weirdest bunch of people that vote on anything ever. Yeah, and it's also a constantly changing body, so it's always going to be different. I'm hoping that as it gets younger um, and more, when I say more diverse, meaning more people of diverse musical tastes, mm-hmm. that that changes. Uh, but I think, oh, yeah. I think, I think it's going to happen within the next three years. Yeah. I think it could happen next year. I don't know. Well, I don't know. It's rare that anybody gets nominated more than three times. If they haven't gotten in by their third time, that's pretty much it. So it'll be one of those, like we were talking about before, it'll be one of those specialty committees that put someone in based on, um, you know, lifetime merit or, or whatever. Uh, That's how she'll get in. And I bet you that that could happen next year. I feel like while we're on this topic, it, probably makes sense to talk about all of the other artists that she has influenced because the the pantheon <laughs> that claim her as an influence is extremely diverse i mean it's everyone you would expect from 
Tori Amos, to those you wouldn't expect, like Big Boy from Outcast. Like Big Boy, I know. <laughs> yeah. That's so um, funny. Tupac, like he yeah. cited her as an influence. Like yep. things that, j- but then again, you, you flip back to who you'd expect and you got like Kate Nash, Regina Spector. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got Grimes, you know, it's just like such a <laughs> weird listing of people that have yeah. called her an influence. Uh, you know, you, you look at that and just think, yeah, she uh, she did some really special stuff to influence yeah. such a diverse body of artists. Right. And you remember, God, this must be 10 years ago, maybe more. I don't remember. Um, Maxwell put out a, a live album and out of nowhere just plays this woman's work because he is so influenced by her and wanted to include that song in his set and it was like it just kind of came out of nowhere but it became so i mean i wouldn't say it was a hit because i don't think it was actually released as a single but it became so notorious that it that song got played everywhere for a while because it was so unexpected and i I loved it yeah i mean hell you've even got john lyden declaring (laughs) her work as quote Beauty beyond belief, unquote. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's Johnny Rotten. Right. <laughs> right. I remember, I know we talked about, we mentioned Tori Amos. I remember the first time I ever heard Tori Amos, and it was Cornflake Girl, and it was on whatever radio station in Florida I was that was playing it at the time. And I heard it, and I was like, holy shit, this sounds like a new Kate Bush song. But that's not Kate Bush. Who is that that's trying to sound that much like Kate Bush? And so I I fell in love with that song immediately because of that and didn't really know that it was Tori Amos. I just knew it was somebody who wasn't Kate Bush. But I was like, man, that could easily be a new Kate Bush single. (laughs) 100%. Yeah. I mean, again, I I mentioned Spark earlier, and I I was actually listening to this while doing the dishes from dinner tonight because I'm old. Um, but you know, when she comes in with the piano yeah, and it's just her with the piano singing, I mean, tell me that's not Kate Bush. I know. Right. And I know that Lady Gaga also Mm -hmm. has, um, expressed, you know, and, uh, Gaga is much more influenced by like the David Bowie's and the Freddie Mercury's, um, so I'm not, I don't know how much she is inspired by Kate, but I know that she has cited her as an influence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that just seems like such a natural fit to me. Yeah. Very different I mean, musical think... tastes, but, or musical aesthetics, but, you know, you can hear an influence. I think it's in the creativity of Gaga. Right. You know, you look at Kate Bush and she was always pushing boundaries. Yeah. And I think that's really where you see it with Lady Gaga. It's it's not necessarily sound alike, but you kind of no. see it in the same way. She's pushing those boundaries. And I think that's what she gets from Kate Bush's work. And mm-hmm. always experimenting. Yeah. And Kate Bush was, especially after the, the third album, Kate Bush was so experimental, but mostly on the fourth and fifth albums, The Dreaming and Hounds of Love, where she had gotten control 
in, from a songwriter and production standpoint where uh, the, the record label wasn't sort of like insisting on her having an outside producer anymore. And she was able to do whatever she wanted on her own time scale. Mm-hmm. And those albums are, are basically just her just seeing how far she can go, like letting her imagination drive the songwriting and drive the direction of the album. And it, I think both of those albums are just extraordinary. And um, oh, go ahead. I was going to say to that point, Alan, I think ever since then, she's been in a very privileged position. Oh, yeah. Where she can do what she wants. And if that means taking 12 years off and then dropping an album out of nowhere, as she did with Ariel. Right. She can do that. But you listen to Ariel and, you know, that is very clearly Kate doing whatever the hell Kate wants to do. Yeah. Likewise, 50 Words for Snow. I mean, she didn't need to make those albums. No one expected those albums. I remember when Ariel dropped because my my Doctor Who fan friends in the UK are also huge Kate Bush fans. And I remember the reaction from them of, wait, what? where the hell did this come from? <laughs> like no one was expecting Ariel. And again, she just did what she won and mm-hmm. wanted to. And it was incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, putting a... Uh, just a small twist on this. If you look at her influence on literature as well, uh, Nick Hornby, Irvin Welsh, Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, um, Roddy Doyle, you know, there's this whole generation of writers coming out of the United Kingdom that are influenced by her, Hmm. as well as, you know, a a lot of uh, American female writers as well. And, um, that's huge because I think it means that she has transcended this idea of like, I'm a musical influence. I mean, I think that in terms of someone who creates words that become songs, that she's also been an influence. And I think that the great thing about running up that hill um, has made me sort of look, re-examine her as a songwriter. That's the way I've tried to rediscover Kate Bush over the last couple of weeks is who is she as a songwriter? Because these songs have lived in my head so long with melodies and stuff that I finally just took out, took out the lyrics and just read them, right? Mm-hmm. Which I've read them before, but I just made an effort to just keep going through for like an hour or two and just read lyrics and just see how they read, right, without music. And it works. And I think that is also incredibly interesting about her that a lot of people tend to really sort of uh, dismiss very easily. It's just how great she is as a songwriter. Well, I think that anybody who is literary, whether they're a writer mm-hmm. or a, 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 a fervent reader, someone who's very interested in literature is going to be interested in Kate Bush because so much of her stuff is inspired by literature. You've got the sensual world, which was inspired by uh, James Joyce and you've got get out of this house, which was um, uh, one of the Stephen King books. The Shining. The Shining, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and you've got the, the, the obvious big one, of course, is Wuthering Heights. Her very first single hit number one on the charts, first time out of the gate. Um, and it's inspired by the Emily Bronte novel. And the really interesting thing is that Kate Bush's birthday is the same day as Emily Bronte's. And she saw the film on like late night on BBC or somewhere and was like entranced by it. So she had to go get the novel and because she wanted to write about it. So she went and got the novel and read the novel to make sure she got the details right. And then 
So this ties into another point that I want to make. She gets into the character of Kathy. And the thing that really grabs me about Kate's work is that she loves doing these character pieces where she gets inside the mindset of whomever she's writing about, whether it be a fighter in the Vietnam War or whether it be Houdini or Houdini's wife, I should say, who is uh, watching her husband almost drown in a stunt. And she's like in that whole scenario of him, like she would keep the, the key to the locks under her tongue. And that's all she just gets into the mind of whoever she's writing about. And I find it so interesting that she sort of like doesn't establish her own identity in her songs. She finds these other characters identities and like fully inhabits them. And I think that's so fascinating. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I, I honestly, you phrased that so perfectly. And mm -hmm. all I want to do at this point is talk about how sparks do a similar thing. I mean, they're very seldom autobiographical biographical and they write about other characters and that's everything they sing from the perspective of but i don't mm -hmm. want to get too far away from kate bush because i feel like that's doing her a disservice um interesting that you mentioned the literary angle alan because i i know he's not the most popular person on the planet right now but boris johnson mm. current and soon to be former prime minister of the united kingdom <laughs> actually listed her as one of the five most influential women in his life. Oh, really? He did. And what's interesting about Boris is before he was a politician, he was a journalist and author. So your point about authors appreciating Kate Bush stands firm there, and I firmly believe yep. that's why he picked her. Interesting. I think you see not just the 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 obvious... Um, literary influences on her work i think that her lyrics as rob was saying are so literate themselves you know mm -hmm. she doesn't write a lyric like kiss or ario speedwagon would she she really it's an art form of its own and you know she's one of those people that consider she doesn't consider herself a, a recording artist or a performer she considers herself a songwriter that's her yeah. craft and you know, if you look at her background, she went to a grammar school, which in mm. England, in when she was growing up in the 70s and earlier, there were effectively two types of public school, right? You took an exam at the age of 11. If you did well, you went to a grammar school. If you didn't, you went to what they called a comprehensive. So she was at the age of 11 assessed as being basically highly intelligent anyway. Mm. Got to go to one of the top schools in her area that was state run as opposed to private and you know i again i think that shows in her in her lyrics and the way she writes her songs mm -hmm. it's also interesting to me that she has had unbelievable success with i mean over the length of her career not as many albums as you would think you know especially when she takes 12 years in between an album or five years in between an album or whatever she hasn't had that many albums and especially that 12-year break, that's plenty of time for people to forget that you exist. Because she kept an incredibly low profile during that time. No interviews, no press. She just was like raising her kid. And, you know, that's it. And, you know, then secretly working on the next album toward the end of that period where Ariel just, you know, flew out of the gate 
I, I remember in that time, uh, again, I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Cy Hart, big Kate Bush fan, know him through through the Doctor Who community. He was telling me around 2002, 2003 that she, because we got talking about it and I mentioned I you know, started to really get interested in her, that she was a recluse and yeah. we would almost certainly never hear from her again. And yeah. then two, three years later, she drops Ariel out of nowhere. Yeah. But what's interesting is that she has had success on the level of like the the first woman ever to have a number one album in Britain that's solely written by her uh, or produced by her. And just, you know, all sorts of things like that. Um, and she hasn't released, you know, she's not like cranking out material. She does very little in the way of press to promote these things and has really only ever toured one time. And that was in 1979. And that tour was six weeks. And she did a run of shows in, what was it, 2000? I don't remember 14. what it was. 14? Before the That's door. what I was thinking. Uh, uh, 2014 at the Hammersmith Odeon. And um, that was 22 shows. That's her, that's her, the entirety of her touring. I mean, that's insane that you can have that kind of success without actively promoting yourself and without being in front of, now she did one-off shows here and there. Mm -hmm. Like she would do, like she did the performances at the secret policeman's third ball and she did the shows with Gilmore. So, you know, it's not like she was never, you know, she would do like top of the pops when she was promoting a single, but, but live shows, like yeah. almost nothing in her entire career. And that is unbelievable. So Alan, you mentioned her collaboration with David Gilmore. And I want to touch more on that because it's arguably due to David Gilmore that she got a record deal in the first place. Yeah. He effectively discovered her, yep. put together a demo, you know, helped her put together her demo and helped shop her to EMI. Yeah. I think it was EMI. It was. Yes. Um, you know, I and I think in that first album, The Kick Inside, you can hear the prog rock influence pretty heavily. And then, of course, he comes back round, 87, as you mentioned, Secret Policeman's Ball. He's on guitar for her doing Running Up That Hill. Yeah. And that version is ooh, possibly my favorite. It's I, so I mean, good. Her voice combined with the wail of David Gilmore's guitar, I... Yes, please, more with a cherry on top. <laughs> and of course, oh. she's one of a, a pantheon of phenomenal artists who has learned her voice to comfortably numb. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah, that's right. Which, uh, so we should talk about some of these. I mean, she's not an artist that does covers, but she's done a handful, you know, over the years, and one of them being Rocket Man uh elton john and it's such an interesting cover it's not something you would ever expect anyone else to do it's it, it changes the song um and i just think it's so interesting and it, it was uh i don't remember it, it it was a big hit for her in the uk and i don't remember like where on the chart it hit but it did really well like probably top 10 or something and um i just think that's so interesting it's a great song i i 
like that more than the Elton John version. It made wow. me sort of come come back to the Elton John version. And yeah. I think part of it is that I heard the Elton John version so many times that having it be completely reinvented and given a new voice, I yeah. think that's the key to it. But I also am just in love with her cover of Sexual Healing. Um, oh, yeah. Which is, I mean, the original is great because you can hear the pain in his voice when he sings. Yeah, it, right? yeah, yeah. And then when she does it, you hear the same thing, but in a completely different way. And I, I think she's very clever in how she, what covers she does, because she picks covers by artists that are not necessarily um, obscure or irrelevant. I mean, she goes, she goes right for the jugular. And she is like, okay, I'm going to do a cover. And at first you might be taken aback, like, why is she doing this? But then it doesn't even sound like the original version at all. It's almost like the song never existed until she did it. And I think that mm. is the great mark of a great cover song. Mm. That's cool. That's cool. While we're talking about covers, I, I feel like we should also touch on some of her other collaborations that aren't necessarily covers. Because she's oh, yeah. collaborated with mm. some phenomenal artists. Mm. I mean, one of the ways I got back into her after I came out of my heavy metal phase as a teenager was... I got really into Peter Gabriel and heard her singing on Games Without Frontiers and Don't Give Up. Yeah. And of course, beyond that, she's collabor collaborated with a plethora of artists, Eric Clapton, David Gilmore, even Nigel Kennedy, Prince. Prince, right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's, I get the feeling she's very selective on who she works with. But when she does, the results are absolute dynamite. Don't you think that she gets like all kinds of requests, especially during like that, that period, like 80s and 90s, when she was like very active and hot. And I just think, you know, if Prince is asking, then, you know, lots of other people are, too. But she's going to she's going to select Prince, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I don't think blame with, her. <laughs> with an artist like Peter Gabriel, I think he and her have uh, kind of kindred spirits oh, in agreed. their willingness yeah. to experiment. So that, as a pairing, does not surprise me in any way, shape, or form. No, they fit together so perfectly. Everything yeah. about them, the 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 artistic aesthetic of both of those artists are just like, they just dovetail with each other, I think. Yes, and when we eventually finally get the next Peter Gabriel album, which I still don't believe will happen anytime soon, <laughs> I, agree. I hope there is a final collaboration between them because we know that we'll be waiting another 20 uh, years for the next peter gabriel album right and the next kate bush album <laughs> yeah again so, another way their careers parallel each other exactly they both right take a fucking damnation in a day to release another album <laughs> so for people who are just discovering kate bush because of stranger things there is a particular song that i want to point out uh go get her the first greatest hits collection that was released uh the whole story there was one new track on that album called experiment four and it is about a laboratory with scientists who were experimenting on music and the government comes in they sort of swoop in and they say we need we're basically commandeering this lab and we are forcing you to change the direction of your work. We need a, a weapon based on sound. And so these scientists who were doing altruistic work now have to do this destructive thing. And it 
as my friend Rachel described it a few days ago, it was Stranger Things, you know, 20 years before Stranger Things ever happened. So go listen to that song, because I think if you're into the Stranger Things thing, that song is really going to resonate with you. And watch the video, too, because it's phenomenal. So what are some of the other tracks that you would recommend and that people jump in with? Rob, I feel like I've talked enough. I'll let you go first. <laughs> I, I'm always the starter guy. Okay. Um, Get used to it, man. So, you know, I talked about sexual healing. Uh, I think that, you know, Hounds of Love or Cloud Busting are kind of essential yeah. um, in many ways. It, I, I, you know, I feel like Hounds of Love is kind of like the uh, the yin and yang of running up that hill in many ways. Um, I, especially with what's been going on with the country country lately in terms of um, issues with women, I've been listening to this woman's work a lot mm, lately. Yeah. And um, that entire album, actually, The Sensual World, that's kind of been my yep. deflating from this album. I, you know, I love Love and Anger. Uh, as well, oh, yeah. which I think is also just really underappreciated. That thing they when I when that record came to college radio, they pushed the hell out of that to college radio, right? Yeah. But I just remembered I just loved it anyway. Um, I love Wuthering Heights. I was really excited because uh, I got to tell a teacher in high school that existed and uh, made him a Kate Bush fan. Um, I like Suspended in Gaffa. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know, I know, I'm weird. Um, and I like Houdini about a lot. that. And I like Houdini a lot too. Um, yeah, I do too. That's a great song. And you know, Anthony was talking a lot about Ariel, and I can't really pick a song that I love from Ariel because I tend to think of Ariel as a complete body of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do recommend that if you're a fan of like albums and concept, and you really want to sink in and just absorb an idea or or think about what you're listening to, go with that. Um, I think that if you are sort of entering the garden of Kate Bush and you want to know where to start, that best of, that first best of is probably yeah. where you go. The dreaming, everyone talks about the side mm. that's the hits, but that weird experimental second side that's like all sort of like a mini, sort of like a mini compact album uh, story. I, I love that too. So, I, you know, I, I think that, yes, listen to the hits. But I think to really get Kate Bush, you have to really dive into the experimental stuff and you really have to appreciate the craft that she does in world building in her music, which I think is really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good answer. All right. So since Rob has given such a deep answer, I'm going to give the super basic version. I, I did want to actually slightly build on Rob before I go on to the hits, but um, as Rob talks about Ariel, I would also say the same thing about 50 Words for Snow. Mm-hmm. I think mm. that also needs to be digested as one complete work. Yeah, yeah. And you can't really approach that cut into pieces. Yeah. So I, I would give a shout out for that, but... <laughs> Tracks that I would say are essential. Uh, Wuthering Heights. It's the track that started it all. The Man with the Child in His Eyes. Yeah. Babushka. Yes. Because, of course, I I love the fact of... I I love the whole story in that track. Me too. 
December will be magic again. If you can track down the 7980 version, um, the re the revamped version for the red shoes is good, but I much prefer the original. It's got like more magic to it, in my opinion, which I know Alan will fight me on this. That's what I feel is lacking in Pat Benatar's cover of Wuthering Heights. It strips the magic away. I, I totally get that. I totally get that. I don't think that had I heard the Kate version in 1980, I would have liked it at all. Yeah. I think that I needed it to be more drum, more guitar, you know, with a, a, a with a with a, a huskier voice rather than the squirrely high pitched voice that she has on her first album. So I think that I think that I had the perfect entryway for me into her through that song. And then later came to the original and thought, oh, God, that's so different. <laughs> that's completely fair enough. Um, <laughs> I'll also give a shout out, of course, if you haven't heard it somehow, go and listen to Running Up That Hill. You must be living in a fucking cave. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, so true. And if they've actually made it this whole hour of our podcast and only just now when you said that, they said, you know what, maybe I should go listen to it. I can't imagine that that's yeah the case and, and then of course you you have some kind of slightly lesser singles them heavy people um yeah. sat in your lap oh i love uh, that one hounds of love right the the title track and then i'd also like to give a shout out to games without frontiers which is technically yeah. a peter gabriel track but she sings on it and don't give up which are oh. huge huge loves of mine so yeah. go and check those out yeah and her her vocal on don't give up is just wonderful. Her uh, on Games Without Frontiers is I, uh, she's what really made me fall in love with that track. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love cool. Peter Gabriel, but yeah. the combination of their voices, she adds another dimension to it that just yeah. works so well. That's so true. That's so, so true. Those are my recommendations. Please stop living in a cave if you haven't heard Running Up That Hill. <laughs> I'm gonna All get right. hate mail now. I've said that. <laughs> Hey, listener feedback. We'll have it next week. I'll tell you. <laughs> All right. So thanks for checking this out for the past hour. Uh, if you haven't investigated Kate Bush, I hope we've given you the inspiration to do so. We will be back next week. Thanks for hanging out with us. We will see you again soon. Have a great week and never stop rocking. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.